Welcome to Math Mutation, a podcast where we discuss fun, interesting, or just plain weird corners of mathematics that you would not have heard in school. Recording from Hillsboro, Oregon, this is Eric Seligman, your host. And now, on to the math. Math Mutation 251. Paradoxes, Mathematical Oddities, and Formal Verification. For this episode, we're doing something a little different. I recently gave a talk at a small conference relating various math mutation topics to formal verification, the engineering discipline where we try to verify correctness of microprocessor designs. A few parts might go over your head if you're not an engineer, but most of the discussion relates to the math topics, so I think math mutation listeners will enjoy it. Here you go. You saw from the title I'm talking about paradoxes and mathematical oddities. So, you know, a paradox, of course, is a statement that seems self-contradictory, and what I call an oddity is just a mathematical fact that might surprise you, which might not quite be a paradox, right? So a classical example is sort of the Girdle sentence, this statement cannot be proven, right? So it's not quite a paradox. You can have true statements that can't be proven, but it's sort of a weird thing about math that that statement can be used to show, right, that any formal system is incomplete uh, with certain limitations. So, um, you know, and so the, the sort of things I'm talking about today, you know, in a mathematical sense are sort of trivial, right? In a lot of cases, you'll say you can resolve it with a line or two of algebra, so why am I wasting your time, right? But the thing is, I think these reveal to us sort of qualitative things about how we think and how we reason that I think can provide us some good guidance in some areas of formal verification. So, so I've divided them into sort of three main categories, um, playing with premises, amusing assumptions, and management mania. So, so let's start with the first one, playing with premises. Now, to start with, how many of you trust me to tell you the truth today? Uh, right, I was hoping to be more, but okay, you're a very skeptical crowd. How many think I'm going to lie to you today? Anyone? Anyone brave enough to raise your hand? Well, actually, I am going to lie to you today. Uh, so I'm sorry about that, but hey, at least I'm upfront about it. So here's why. So suppose I'm, I'm 97% accurate in any given minute. I think that's a pretty good accuracy rate for a speaker, right? Well, if I talk for 45 minutes, that means the probability that everything I say will be true, you have to take that 0.97 to the 45th power, and that gets you somewhere around 0.25. So, so it's virtually guaranteed that I'm going to say something wrong if I talk long enough. Right? And so this is actually known as David Mackinson's preface paradox. And so basically the question you should be asking is not why I'm, I'm giving you this apology, but why those other two speakers, those dirty liars, didn't give you the same apology, right? I mean, because, you know, every speaker is, you know, speaking every minute they speak, there's a chance they'll make a mistake and those probabilities compound. But more seriously, I mean, this is sort of a reminder that even if you have very small probabilities of error, when you do lots of stuff, Right, those probabilities accumulate. And just think about when you tape out a modern chip, how much stuff you do along the design and validation process. Even if you're an awesome engineer, you do everything as well as you can, you're accumulating this constant chance of error, and chances are you're going to make a mistake. So that's why it's really important to, um, to really think about this and to do sort of redundant checks right, and, and do multiple ways of verifying things. So I think the previous speakers actually gave some good examples of, um, for example, when they were doing the, the end-to-end comprehensive assertions, they still also did the embedded RTL assertions, right, in genes design. And, um, you know, when you're doing this, you know, comprehensive formal verification, you still include the model in your full chip simulation. So you have these redundant methods to help catch the mistakes that you're inevitably going to make. So, so here's another interesting, uh, not quite paradox, that um, this actually comes from a dialogue by Lewis Carroll, where um, Achilles is speaking to the tortoise, 
Um, and in case you're wondering about the asymmetry between these images here, um, this is the best I could do using you know, Google non-copyrighted uh, image search. Um, but the, on the left, that's Achilles, and on the right, that's a tortoise, in case you're wondering. So, so Achilles starts saying you know, how proud he is that he's mastered logic. Right? He's figured out that if P implies Q and P is true, then Q must be true. And now the tortoise says, wait a minute, you have a hidden premise there that if P implies Q and P is true, then that means that Q is true. You haven't proven that, right? And so Achilles says, okay, well, okay, so that's a premise. But uh, once you accept that premise, now I've proven that Q is true, right? And the tortoise says, well, wait a minute. We have to t accept the premise that the first thing you said plus that thing I said together, that that will imply that Q is true. That's another premise. And it goes on and on like that. And, um, and of course, you can look at the tortoise as being rather stubborn, Right? Um, you know, I'm sure at some point you could probably come up with some recursive definition of implication that should cover what he's saying. But he's sort of covering, covering the fact that, you know, well, no matter what you say, when you think about it, if you say you've absolutely proven something, right, there's always some hidden premises there, right? Some, some assumptions, some basic definitions that you have in mind, you know, whether it's a definition of what implication is, that sort of can't be defined in terms of other things, right? Without having to come up with yet another round of definitions. So, now, if you think about this tortoise getting a job as a validation engineer, I think he would have a lot of fun um, working in any of our companies these days, right? Because you can ask the question, when is the design really proven, right? You say, oh, we'll use the OSCE end-to-end -end formal methodology, so now we know our design is proven, right? Because Viggen says so. But that, that's not quite true, right? So did you enter the correct specs into your formal tools, right? Your, your formal tool says it's proven, but where'd those specs come from? Then was that tool correctly implemented? Right? So someone wrote some code that implements that tool. Did they formally prove that code was valid? And then what about the compiler they used to compile that code? Was that formally verified? And what about the OS they were running on? Did someone formally verify that? And you can imagine your stubborn tortoise validation engineer going on and on. Right? And the real point here is that no matter how full you claim your full proof is, there are always hidden assumptions there. Right? And you really have to keep that in mind. Right? I think a lot of us in this room have at some point gotten into trouble because we've gone to a manager and said, I know 100% there's absolutely no bugs in my design because I did a full proof. And then, of course, a month later, the simulation team comes back and says, ha ha, you missed something. Right? And, and there always is a premise. Uh, did you have a comment or a defense? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, you, can, you can go on forever, right, with this, yeah. Yeah, it's a big circle. Yeah, so it's true. So now, here's another interesting little logic question. So we have what appears to be a blue and a green house to the casual observer. So how many of you actually believe that the house on the left is blue? Okay, good, good. You've learned to be very trusting. Well, it's not. It's actually a color called grew. So the color grew is defined as something that appears to a normal observer to be blue until about uh, 3.12 p.m. And then it turns green. See, I was right. The color was grew. So the question is, how do you know that whether something you look at is blue or grew? Right? What, what's your evidence? You know, there, there really is no way to prove it. Right? So you might say, oh, well, you know, this, this grew concept, this is something complicated, and blue is a nice, simple, basic color. But I say you have it exactly backwards, because this color that you guys call blue is actually really complicated. Something you call as blue means that it's grew until 3.12 p.m., and then it turns bleen. 
right? So this, this blue concept is really weird. You have to use multiple things to describe it. Well, blue and green are the primitive colors that really we should be defining, right? And so, of course, this is known as Nelson Goodman's riddle of induction, right? There, there really is no objective way to tell if something you're looking at is blue or if it's really grew, right? How can you prove that? So, you know, this is just a reminder that, you know, we look at things and say, okay, well, we think we've come up with a simple description of what they are, right? But we never know for, tr for real if we've defined the right primitive notions. You think so, but only if you're cheating and, you know, not, not looking at my slide presentation. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it is an interesting question. In this particular case, you could come up with something that says, okay, well, you have to define it without reference to time, or, you know, some rules that say, you know, yeah, or if Sava's picture doesn't change. But, you know, we still have the question of how, how do you know you've defined the right primitive notions, right? And I think if you've worked with a design engineer who's new to SVA, right, who's tried to define sort of basic assumptions about their design, you've always seen a design engineer who makes the assumptions 10 times more complicated than they need to be. Right? And, and they'll come up with some really bizarre way of describing something that to you is just a very simple implication property. Right? And this is just really a reminder that you know, there's, there's simple and complicated ways to look at sort of the same situation. And, and you really have to think carefully about what you're looking at. So now here's another interesting sort of logical trick. So suppose I want to study the, the behavior of the wild hippopotamus. You know, this, this computer stuff is boring. I want to change careers. So I have a few problems, you know, I'm, I'm too lazy to leave my house, right? I want to do this while I'm sitting at my computer in my basement, and my wife won't let me get a pet hippopotamus to, to come to our house to, that I can study it. So how am I going to study hippos from my basement? If I want to gather evidence, for example, for the statement that if X is a hippo, then X has a big nose, right? It seems like I might be stuck, right? I might have to abandon my new career and go back to this boring, you know, computer engineering stuff. You know, well, actually, I'm okay. I don't have to abandon my new career. Because every statement logically has a contrapositive, right? So if A implies B, right, that's essentially the same statement as not B implies not A. So instead of trying to prove that if X is a hippo, X has a big nose, what I want to prove is if X doesn't have a big nose, then X is not a hippo. And that I can find plenty of instances to observe in my basement. You can see that my mirror doesn't have a big nose, and it's not a hippo. My garbage can doesn't have a big nose, it's not a hippo. My cat doesn't have a big nose, and it's not a hippo, though he has been overeating a bit lately, so it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Um, so now I can look at all these different things. I can constantly gather evidence for this statement that if X doesn't have a big nose, X is not a hippo. So I can do all this productive hippology research without leaving my basement. Isn't that great? Now, of course, you might argue that, okay, there's some kind of issue here, right? Because what really matters is that you have a meaningful trigger condition, right? If you have a trigger condition that's hit all the time in a really stupid, trivial way, right, of not having a big nose, then each piece of data you're inducting from is a lot less interesting, right, than the rare trigger condition where, for the original statement, X is a hippopotamus, right? And so again, this is a reminder, you know, when, when you have your design engineers, maybe who haven't done much SVA before, starting to write properties, you really want to look closely at them and figure out, okay, are they running their properties in the most sensible way, right? And, and in particular, remember that any property can be stated in a, a straightforward way and a really convoluted way. A lot of times both ways are somewhat convoluted. But you really have to ask the question, okay, is the trigger condition the meaningful side, 
right? Are you looking at the rare event or the common event as a trigger condition? And depending on whether you've chosen the right trigger, your property might be more or less meaningful, you know, especially in case where you're doing like bounded proofs and things. You know, of course, you can argue, okay, well, if you do a full proof of the contrapositive, then it's just as good as a full proof of the original. But, you know, in a lot of cases, you're not doing full proofs. You're doing bounded proofs, you're doing some limitations, and then having the meaningful trigger really makes a big difference. Right? You want to make sure that your designers aren't playing this logic trick and running somewhat silly bounded proofs of, of statements that have the trigger in the wrong direction. All right, so, so that's the first group of, uh, of uh, sort of uh, mathematical oddities I, I've come across. And the second group I want to discuss is what we call amusing assumptions. Things where like what we're assuming about what we're proving can kind of get us into trouble. So the first thing I want to talk about is a famous paradox called the ship of Theseus paradox. So the idea here is that you have a ship, which is said to be the ship that Theseus originally sailed in, um, that's in some museum in Greece, and you know the museum is looking at it and saying, okay, well, this ship, we've been headed on display for a few thousand years now. It's kind of getting old, right? So they'll look at it and say, okay, well, there's a few planks that aren't quite right. You know, they're kind of rotting away, so we'll take those planks, throw them in the junkyard, and put new planks there. So once they put a few new planks on, does it still count as the ship of Theseus, the ship they're displaying in the museum? How many say yes? How many say no? Wow, you, you guys are really hard, real hard noses. So you basically, when you go to the museums, you'd like any ancient, any like old painting that's been restored, you say, nope, that's not the painting anymore. You know, is that the Mona Lisa? Now someone put a new brushstroke on to restore it. Forget it. No more Mona Lisa. So, wow. Okay, you guys are really strict. But um, so most people would say it is still the ship of Theseus after a few planks have been replaced. But now what happens, let's say there's a bum at the junkyard who's been collecting those discarded planks. And over the years, he collects those planks one by one, and eventually you get to a point where in the original display, all of the planks have been restored, so they've all been replaced with new updated planks. But the bum in the junkyard has assembled a second ship of Theseus out of rotted but still available planks and says, look, you, you can't go to the museum anymore. You have to go to the junkyard to see mine because I'm the only one with the real ship. Sounds like you guys would vote for the bum as the one who has the right ship. <laughs> Which would you visit? The museum? The junkyard? Both? <laughs> yeah. Probably be a big argument there, right? So, yeah, but it is an interesting question, right? When you have something and you start replacing pieces of it, when is it that you're said to have something new? Right? So, I like to think of this as the verification IP of Theseus uh, paradox in the modern situation, right? So how many of us have been in a situation where we've had some complicated protocol at work, we've developed a good set of verification IP for it, then like a year later someone says, oh, I want to make a few slight changes to the protocol. Now you're able to accept three inputs instead of two and you have a maximum delay of up to five cycles later. So you make a few tweaks to your verification IP. Right. How many of you then go and re-verify the entire verification IP versus the original spec? Wow, okay, you're very conscientious. I mean, what I've seen is the majority of people, they'll make a few minor changes and say, okay, well, this is still essentially the same verification IP, so I don't really have to redo the original sort of qualification process from scratch. Right. But it is a question. You have to think about it as you're making changes to these things. When is it the same verification IP? When is it a new verification IP? And when do you need a full requalification? Right. It is something really important to think about. And, um, and of course, like we saw in the, the paradox, there's no real clear answer. 
you know, obviously the safest thing would be to say always completely requalify it from scratch, but most of us just don't have the time to do that. All right, so this is something important to think about. And um, by the way, I won't even try to get into the legal issues here of you know when someone has to sell it as a different verification IP. That's a, that's a whole different uh, different can of worms. <laughs> so, so here's another really interesting mathematical oddity. Um, so suppose you want to make sort of a conveyor belt that has a bunch of rollers that keep objects rolling at a constant height. Okay. So what what shape do the rollers have to be? And you want to guess at what shape they should be? Okay, well, look at this picture. I've sort of subtly implied something. Right, you would assume they have to be around, right? Actually, they don't, right? What we need is a curve of constant width, right? Which doesn't necessarily have to mean it's a circle, right? It has to be something that rolls, and then the distance from the top to the bottom is always a constant, right? And you would think that that means it has to be a circle, right? But actually, curves of constant width exist that are not circles, Right, so the most interesting one, or I guess the first one discovered, was what's called the Rouleau Triangle. You think about it, at the intersection of three circles, there's this little triangle-like thing formed. Right? And if you think of this, this thing rolling along, at any moment, let's say you're sitting on one of these points here. Anywhere along this curve on the opposite side, the distance from this point down to there is just equal to the radius of one of these circles. So if you think of this rolling along, at any point, you're sort of on one side, you're touching a point. On the other side, you're touching the opposite curve. So it actually turns out that this is a curve of constant width. You'll always be at a height of the radius of those circles as this thing rolls along. So you actually can make rollers out of shapes that aren't circles in theory. And these Rouleau triangles actually have a lot of really interesting, weird properties um, that um, they're useful in some, some forms of industrial engineering. For example, you can make a drill bit that's that shape and it drills actually a square, believe it or not. And so um, my wife is actually a mechanical engineer, and she tells me they do have rouleau gears available in some of her factories she's worked with, though she's never had occasion to use one. <laughs> so, uh, so there are these weird shapes that sort of you know, have these properties, like the constant width, that you would assume is all, always circles, but that isn't quite true. And I think yeah, the really interesting lesson we get from these is that you, know, you really want to enforce the spec, not a preconceived solution, right, when you're writing properties for formal verification, right? So I've seen a lot of people, like, for example, are setting up formal verification properties for an arbiter, and they write a bunch of properties which essentially enforce that it's a round-robin arbiter, for example. But is that really the requirement for their project, or are they really just assuming the implementation they already know about? Maybe the requirement is just that the arbiter has fairness and avoids starvation, Right? Maybe the exact protocol of the arbiter isn't really prescribed in advance. And, and you really want to think about things like that. You know, when you're writing properties, you want to figure out, okay, do, are you enforcing the spec or are you sort of trying to pre-enforce a solution that you're thinking of for the spec, which might limit your options later on? Right. Just uh, food for thought when you're setting up a formal verification environment. Now, here's a, a really interesting sort of um, mathematical fact. Um, so, a puzzle for you. Are there two antipodal points on Earth, so two points that are on exact opposite sides of the Earth that are the same temperature right now? How many people say yes? You've probably seen this one before, right? <laughs> How many people say no? No. Okay. Wow, a lot of no's. Well, actually, the no's are wrong. There are, and you can actually prove it using some simple mathematics. So the key is something called the intermediate value theorem. 
So what the intermediate value theorem says, if you have a function and its value is above zero at some point, and then below zero later on, and it's a continuous function, at some point it has to pass zero, right? So you'll believe the intermediate value theorem? Well, hopefully you'll believe it at some point, but I'm sure you have to think about it a little bit. But it's, it's just pretty much saying that if you draw a line from here to here, it has to cross zero at some point, right? And so let's make our function be the difference in temperatures for these two guys. So suppose that we have two guys standing at antipodal points on some great circle, and right now they're not at the same temperature. So the difference, this guy's temperature minus this guy's temperature, is some value t. Now think of these guys walking along the Earth, right? So they, all, they stay on opposite sides, and that temperature difference we're looking at as a function of their angle, right? So at the start, at zero, their, their difference is temperature t, right? When they reach 180 degrees, they each are at the opposite points where they started from, the difference is negative t, right? Because they've, um, it's, they've switched places, so instead of this guy minus this guy, it's now this minus this, right? So if this difference was t, and it reaches negative t at some point, there must be a point in the middle where it reached zero, right? So we don't know where that point was, but somewhere, as they were rotating along here, they reached a point where the function, the difference between their temperatures, was actually zero. So if you haven't seen this before, you might have to stare at it a little bit to believe it, but the, again, the, the key thing is that because this intermediate value theorem, right, this function starts above zero, ends up below zero, it has to hit zero at some point, we know that they have to reach a point where they're at the same temperature. And we don't know where that is, but we know it's got to be somewhere along the way, right, where the function of that angle is zero. Yeah, so I'm assuming temperatures on Earth are a continuous function, right? That is important. Yeah, so if you can have a discontinuous jump in temperature, then that messes this up. But I think temperature should be continuous. Like, if I'm standing here and I walk over here, is it suddenly going to be 100 degrees colder? You know, I think it'll have to continually vary from place to place. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's, but still, it'll, it'll, I think it will be continuous. But, you know, so what I think is cool about this is that just, you know, it, it's sort of, when I first heard this, it was amazing to me that we can prove this really interesting property about temperatures on the Earth, right, that there have to be two opposite points of equal temperature, and we're just proving it on really basic mathematical principles, right? On our assumption that temperature is continuous, which, you know, unless you're that guy, you believe, and <laughs> that the intermediate value theorem holds. And with essentially those two principles, you can actually prove that we have two guys somewhere on the opposite sides of the Earth who are living at the same temperature, right? And, and so this is, I think, just a nice illustration of the fact that with very simple assumptions, you can get far-reaching consequences, right? So how many of us have been in a situation where we're helping someone debug their formal verification, and, you know, and they say, oh, well, this weird waveform, this can't be happening because I only made, like, three assumptions. Well, you know, maybe those three assumptions were really important, and they said really subtle things about your model. You know, really, really simple assumptions can do crazy things sometimes. So now, another really interesting sort of, you might call this a physics oddity rather than a math oddity, but um, there's a concept called Terrell rotation, right? And so most of us probably studied relativity in physics class at some point in college, though um, if you're like me, you're probably pretty rusty on it. But um, one, one principle you, you might remember is that if an object is traveling close to the speed of light, it shortens relative to the observer. So if this square is traveling past the sky at close to the speed of light, what will it look like to him? 
So if he looks, what will he see passing him? How many say it'll look like kind of a rectangle, a shortened square? Yes? Am I missing anything? Well, you can probably guess from the title that there's something else to it, right? And actually, what'll happen is it'll shorten, but it'll also appear to be rotated, right? And this is because if you trace really carefully where all the rays of light are going as it's passing by someone, an object close to the speed of light, like some of the points that are kind of on the backside over here that normally you wouldn't be able to see till this is all the way past you, because of the relativistic contraction, some of the light can actually get to you before it's past you. So a uh, rectangle or a square that's passing by close to the speed of light will actually appear not only be contracted, but also appear to be rotated as it's passing you. And what's interesting about this, you know, it is kind of an interesting oddity of relativity, but I think what's most interesting about this is that um, you know, for decades after the special relativity theory came out, people got this consistently wrong. So for half a century, there were common textbooks and lectures by famous physicists that all talk about the contraction effect. They'd all have illustrations of someone watching a cube go by and seeing it being contracted, and none of them mentioned this rotation effect. Right? It wasn't until 1959 that uh, Terrell actually published the, the solution that traced the rays of light properly, and describe this rotation effect in addition to the contraction. You know, and, and so, you know, basically, you know, the, the real lesson we draw from this is all the smart people can miss something, right? And, and this is something important for us to think about in formal verification, right? Because I think a lot of us, when we do formal verification, we're in positions where we're sort of poking at corner cases of a design, right, that people haven't really looked at. And so a lot of us have been in this situation where we, we're sort of running a formal verification environment, we find some really weird behavior we look at it and say, okay, well, you know, the designers must have just intended for this never to happen. And so we add, add something to our list of assumptions to rule it out instead of going to the owner and saying, you know, hey, here's a potential bug. And, you know, the, actually, you know, what we find over and over in formal verification is that, right, we are finding corner cases that really do reveal obscure bugs that all the smart people on our design team actually missed, right, or failed to anticipate. Right. And I think this Terrell rotation is just a nice lesson of the fact that, you know, yeah, if you're hanging out with a bunch of smart people, they really can miss something. And just because people are smarter than you doesn't mean that you can't find something that they overlooked. So, okay, so the final set of things I want to talk about is um, management mania. So, so what I want to do is, you know, talk about a few topics that sort of relate more to management than to the day-to-day -day sort of formal verification that we do. You know, a lot of us have to sort of manage the formal verification process. There are a few people in here who are actually managers, and so maybe some of this will be relevant to them. But so, of course, one, one cool mathematical uh, topic that you've probably read about in the popular literature to some degree is fractal shapes, right? These really complicated shapes that are sort of infinitely self-similar. So on the left side, you have a, an example of the Mandelbrot set, you know, just kind of a complicated shape. You can see that off to the side, we have sort of a miniature version of the bigger shape sort of sticking out. And that goes on to infinity. Then on the right, we have something called the Koch snowflake, right? And this form on the right is actually pretty easy to generate, right? Basically, you start out with a hexagon, draw a triangle in the middle third, and then repeat the process forever out to infinity. And again, you can see that this circled part here is essentially a replica of the right half of the original picture. And so we have this sort of infinite self-similarity of this fractal. So you might ask, so what does this have to do with management? You know, well, actually, there was an, an interesting book by an author called Margaret Wheatley, which said that you should use fractals to guide how you, 
how you um, drive your corporate values throughout your organization. So you should try to aim for a fractal organization. So any small part you look at should have the same corporate values as the top level. And so, um, by the way, I don't know anything about the Office of the Secretary of Defense. This is just the org chart that came up when I Googled for org charts out of copyright. So, so, but, you know, the Secretary of Defense, whatever values he's driving, you know, nuke them to shreds, whatever, these guys down here in this department, they should be thinking about the same values, right, at this level that this guy's thinking of. If this guy's thinking nuke them to shreds and these guys are thinking that we should be driving for peace, then, you know, some, there's a disconnect somewhere, right? So you really want to have a fractal organization that, where the, each part is sort of viewed as a subsystem that's sort of isometric to the whole thing, right, and driving for the same values. Yeah. Of course, there, there is a school of thought that corporate values are just BS in general, but, um, yeah, we'll discuss that right here. So now here's an, an example that comes from my uh, time on the school board um, in the Hillsborough School District in Oregon. Um, and um, this is one of my many motivations for never wanting to deal with school boards again, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, so let's say we're looking at some statistics. Um, in this case, we're looking at, you know, achievement for various grades. Um, and um, as we would expect, you know, a lot of times graphs have error bars with them that reflect uncertainty in the measurement. So if you see a graph like this, or say grade four, you know, these are the test scores, how would you report this? Um, so would you report this as something like, you know, 66 plus or minus 11? How many of you think that's a good way to report that statistic? Okay, Vigian thinks it is. I, I think it is, right? That seems like the natural way to report it, right? You have some average value and you have some error bars. Well, if you're on the school board, what they're going to tell you is, oh, the grade four has an adjusted score of 77. And I'd say, well, what? You know, I was really confused when I first saw that. Luckily, you know, I had, um, when our, uh, the guy who was giving this report to our board, he had the original graph sort of attached in the footnotes. And I was able to take a look, and that's how I saw, you know, wait a minute, this adjusted score thing, what are you doing here? And he explained that, um, you know, oh, well, this is standard in government. When you have error bars and an average score, you just report the top of the error bar as your adjusted score. So um, that's... Uh, you know, I, I won't comment on the ethics of that. Uh, it seemed really bad to me. But, um, you know, I think the key lesson from here is that if someone uses the word adjusted on any kind of measurement, that really can be absolutely anything, right? There's no, <laughs> there's no common rule for what kind of adjustments you have to adjust when you're measuring statistics. So you really want to be careful when people are presenting these statistics, if you're managing something like a school district or an engineering organization, if someone says, oh, well, the adjusted result of our tests is blah, 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 you know, stop them there, say, okay, please provide me the exact formula for the adjustment you used, because if someone's providing adjusted scores, they can do anything. And, um, you know, especially if you see anything related to government, if someone says adjusted score, it's a good chance they did this. So, all right, so getting on to things that are more pleasant. Um, so... Of course, since I had paradoxes in the title, I figured I have to mention Zeno's paradox at some point in this talk, right? Well, actually, Zeno had a family of paradoxes, but, you know, this is one of his typical ones, which says, okay, well, you know, can Achilles, you know, complete his race? Well, first, before he gets all the way across, he has to get halfway across. Then he has to get a quarter of the way across, then an eighth of the way across, and a sixteenth, and so on. And so he has an infinite number of things to do before he completes the race, so he can never complete it, right? Or he can never cross the road. Right. How many people think he can actually complete it? 
Hopefully all of us agree that he can actually complete it, right? Most of us have to cross a road on the way to get in here. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the reason this works is because an infinite sum of infinitesimal quantities can be finite, right? So the key here is that, yes, he has to do an infinite number of things, but each of these infinite number of things is getting infinitely smaller, so that balances out. And you add your infinite number of infinitesimal things, and it works out nicely. Well, you know, if Zeno had lived to the modern day and gotten a job at Intel, I think he would feel more justified in his original paradox. Because, you know, most of us who've been on a project that's tried to do verification have been in a situation like this, right? The first half takes us a week to get done, right? We knock out all the easy properties. Then we start doing some harder properties, take another week, get maybe half the remainder done. We start fighting our complexity issues. And after another week, we've got half the remaining ones done. Then we're up to the really hard issues, call in Vigian to solve some for us. After a week, you know, Oski has solved this many for us. And we find that, you know, even though we're getting fewer and fewer properties each time, it's still taking us a week each time. So instead of this infinite sum of infinitesimals, it's an infinite sum of positive numbers, and we can never finish a project. Right? But of course, that's not the real issue, because, you know, what we've learned these days is that, you know, at some point you have to stop, right? You know, as we mentioned, I think a couple of the previous speakers mentioned, they did bounded proofs. At some point, they signed off on the bounded proofs, right? Even though ideally you'd like to get full proofs on everything, that would take you infinite time, right? You have to come up with sign-off criteria that let you stop somewhere. Otherwise, you could take forever to get every single complexity issue out, right? So most real projects today, they sign off on bounded proofs. They agree that rather than completing this infinite leap that uh, Achilles takes to finish his project, at some point you do have to stop. All right. So, you know, the, the, the real lesson here is, you know, create good bounded sign-off criteria. You know, things do get much longer to solve as they get harder, as you get the last, last few complexity issues in your project, and it is okay to recognize that you need to stop somewhere. All right, so the final topic I want to talk about is the, the abuse of in induction. Right, and so what do I mean by that? You know, so suppose we want to ask the question of what makes a rectangle a rectangle? Right, so we start by looking at a few rectangles. So I've got some examples here of rectangles. So what can we see here? Well, these are convex polygons. They have four corners. They have two pairs of parallel sides. Right, we'll look at these and say, okay, yeah, those, those probably characterize a rectangle. So let's draw a rectangle now based on our knowledge here. Right, there. Right, well, you know, what happened here? Well, we were looking at examples of rectangles and trying to figure out properties that make a rectangle a rectangle. But really, if we're only looking at positive examples, we're getting as properties such that being a rectangle implies you have those properties. Right? So it's the converse of what we need. What we're trying to do is find examples of properties such that that property implies you're a rectangle. Right? But to do that, we need to look at both positive and negative examples. We can't just look at positive examples or we won't get any idea of what properties are necessary that distinguish rectangles from, from things that are non-rectangles, right? And that's our problem here. If in our first set of figures we'd had a parallelogram, we would have seen, okay, well, that's different than a rectangle, and maybe understood the rule that they have to have right angles. Now, of course, we're talking about abstract rectangles. It seems kind of silly to do induction in this way, but how many of you have read a business book where, you know, it profiles a bunch of famous CEOs and says, hey, if you want to be a CEO, you've got to be like these guys, right? So you might look at, you know, say, I want to be a CEO, so let's look at Andy Grove, let's look at this Craig guy, let's look at the Lip Vuitton. 
Okay, well, what do they have in common? Okay, well, they live in California, they're smart people, they have interesting hair. So those are the things I gotta do to be a CEO. Right? Well, you know, again, you're not really looking at what distinguishes these CEOs from non-CEOs. Right? So trying to look at you know, things you glean just from looking at these positive examples is probably going to get you going off in the wrong direction. You'll find lots of things that don't really distinguish these guys from people who aren't CEOs. Right? And, and you know, probably, one of, probably the worst CEO of the millennium, you know, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, you know, is famous for having slavishly you know, tried to base her life on that of Steve Jobs. But, you know, by just looking at Steve Jobs' positive example and not understanding what distinguished him from the people who are crappy CEOs, you know, she made a real mess of things. You know, if you really want to understand how to be a CEO, you have to contrast your positive and negative examples. So you need to, like, not just look at, you know, the people who've become CEOs, but look at a bunch of dorks who aren't CEOs. Say, okay, how'd these guys screw up and not become CEOs? All right, so there you see me, you see random IT guy, you see Roger. You know, we're not CEOs. You have to find out why we suck compared to these top three guys. Right? And that will tell you what, what it uniquely takes to be a CEO. Right? But, to, but to gain the wisdom through induction, you need to look at examples of both success and failure. Right? And, and that's really important. Right? And by the way, you know, so this example of CEOs is you know, a little bit silly, but how many of us here have presented a case case study papers where we talk about a couple of projects we did at our company that succeeded and we don't mention any projects that failed. Right. I know. <laughs> don't, don't you two previous speakers also qualify? Um, you know, I think a lot of us have done that, right? And it, this actually takes up a lot of content at conferences where you know, people present ca cases where they've had a team that did some great stuff with formal verification but they don't contrast it with any projects that have failed in formal verification. So you don't know if what they, what they observed that they did, does that really distinguish you know, what makes a formal verification team succeed versus one that fails, right? I really think we should be seeing more papers that say, you know, hey, you know, look, we did these five projects, three of them succeeded, two of them failed, here's what distinguishes the ones that succeeded at formal. I think those papers would be a lot more interesting than just you know, these, these cheerleader papers that we all like to publish that say, yeah, here's our successful projects and here's why we're awesome. So, all right, so, so let me just summarize uh, the mathematical oddities we've talked about today. So we start with the, the preface paradox, right? Remember that all speakers are liars. Um, we talked about Carol's stubborn tortoise, right? No matter how good your full proofs are, there's, there's always some premise you're ignoring. Uh, talked about Gru and Bleen houses, right? You need to relearn your colors. And contrapositive hippos, right? By saying, by proving not B implies not A instead of A implies B, you can do lots of weird things with implication. In the amusing assumptions, we talk about the verification IP of Theseus, right? How many things do you have to remove and replace before you've changed your ship or your verification IP to something new? Talk about rouleau triangles and the example that, you know, you shouldn't assume your solution when you're creating your specs. About theorem controlled weather, right? Where just very simple assumptions about the intermediate value theorem and temperature being continuous can actually tell you a really bizarre fact about temperatures on the Earth. And Terrell rotation, right, where all the smart people managed to miss something for 50 years. And finally, in the area of management, we discussed the fractal organization, how the shape of fractals and their self-similarity can sort of guide you in org charts. The truth about adjusted statistics, right, remember that word adjusted. If you ever hear it anywhere in a presentation of statistics, remember to beat up the speaker and find out what the adjustment was. He's probably screwing with you. Um, talking about Zeno's paradox of project scheduling, Right, where um, you know, diminishing returns, things keep taking longer, you gotta stop somewhere. 
And then the abuse of induction, right? Whether you're talking about CEOs or talking about case studies, you really have to be looking at both positive and negative examples if you want to conclude anything. So, okay, so I know this talk wasn't very deep. Uh, like I mentioned, I, you know, for various logistical reasons, couldn't get into depth about any Intel projects, but hopefully you found it uh, somewhat amusing. Um, if you like what you heard, there's the, the Math Mutation book is available at mathmutation.com. And of course, we have our formal verification book available at formalverificationbook.com. By the way, if you're too cheap to buy a book at the mathmutation.com, you can also subscribe to the podcast for free. It won't cost you anything. So feel free to go there and uh, have fun. All right. Thanks. I hope you found that interesting. If you want to see the video or the PDF file of the slides, you can find those in the show notes at mathmutation.com. And this has been your Math Mutation for today. 